Amen. You know, I hope each week as we worship through the music part that you are grateful for the truth that we sing. I'm just rolling through the theology of the songs we sang this morning and I'm afraid that we often, we've heard so many times that Jesus loves me that we learn to take it for granted. It loses its impact. We hear it too much. And that doesn't ever need to happen. I mean, really, when you sit there or stand there in your pews and you sing about the fact that the sovereign, transcendent creator of the universe loves you enough to go across and die for you, it ought to touch you. I mean, it should stir your heart. And if you could sit there while we sing those songs and just cross your arms and stare out the window, um, if your faith has gotten to that level of uh, dryness, you, you've, just, you've got to do something to get right with God. You're missing out on the best part of being a believer, which is gathering with fellow believers in worship. Isn't that what heaven is going to be? You know? See, I say all that because I'm such a frustrated music minister. Oh, that was a joke. <laughs> I can't sing. And I'm still mad about it. I can't play. I have a hard time playing the radio. And I'm mad about that. But one of these days, I'm going to get to heaven, and I'm going to have a, a transformed body, and I'm going to have vocal cords that can, can crank it. You see me in heaven, it's not going to be on the golf course or on the, you know, I'm not going to be fishing, I'm going to be somewhere singing. No, I'm going to be singing. <laughs> Beth gets up here and makes it look so easy. Don't you just hate? No, I don't. Hey, the sermon this morning, you're going to have to hang in here with me because the first part of the sermon is a diagnosis of the problem and it's just kind of dry. The second part of the sermon is God's solution. The second part of the sermon is God's solution to the problem and it's pretty good. So you got to hang in here with me through the first part to get to the second part. But I promise you, if you hang in here with me through the first part, you're going to be really glad you did. Now we're in a series of sermons. We're looking at the 23rd Psalm. Today is sermon number two in that series. And I'm going to talk to you about a sense of security a source of security. Now, Psalms 23 is one of the most beloved passages in all of the Bible. It, it's recognized around the world. It's actually respected around the world, uh, even by those who are not Christians. Uh, but as much as it is loved, Psalms 23 is not necessarily that easy to understand. Someone has written this, the imagery of Psalms 23 conceals as much as it reveals. And the reason for that is most of us didn't spend, haven't spent a whole lot of time on an Israeli sheep farm. Any of y'all spend a lot of time on an Israeli sheep farm? Just, just checking. Okay. Most of us, you know, we haven't done that. And so the metaphors are somewhat obscure. And also because it's, it's beautiful Hebraic poetry. Now, we may admire poetry to a certain extent, but it's probably not the, the reading material we go to first. I mean, seriously, did anybody pick up a, po a poetry anthology this week and read it just for sheer pleasure? Anybody? 
Okay, so Psalms 23 has these obscure metaphors and it's written in Hebraic poetry, which does make it sometimes hard to understand. So we do have to wade through it. We don't want to just uh, get the shallow, superficial, surface level understanding. We want to dig deep down into it and figure out what it's talking about. And, And it's worth the effort because Psalms 23 is so very personal in its nature. It is relational. It is powerful. And when we, when we come to understand the truth that it's communicating, it's emotionally moving. Now, last week we looked at, at the first verse. And the first verse, the Lord is my shepherd. He's not a shepherd. He's not even the shepherd. Now, theologically, he is the shepherd. He is the one and only big shepherd. He is the honking shepherd. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. He is the shepherd. But Psalms 23 goes past that and gets past just the theological understanding of his transcendent nature and gets into something so much more important, which is the personal and intimate part of his nature. He's not a shepherd. He's not even the shepherd. He's my shepherd. And there's so much that comes with that. We can look to him. We can turn to him. We can call out to him. Hebrews tells us we are invited to um, the book of Yeah. We are invited to boldly approach his throne. We don't need an appointment. I mean, you think about we're all where where can you go these days that you don't need an appointment? And the reason that, that businesses have to set up appointments is because there's so many of us and they, they just get overwhelmed. They've got to set up an appointment schedule. It makes perfect sense. You, you've got to have an appointment to get into anywhere, anytime these days. You've got to. But with God, because He is my shepherd, He is your shepherd, it's very personal in nature. We are invited to boldly approach Him and we don't need an appointment. I don't know about you, but I like that. He knows you, knows your name. He knows your particular situation. And in your particular situation, you have certain needs and he is going to meet every one of those needs because the thing you need the most is him and what he's going to provide is himself. His presence will sustain you. And because of this close and personal relationship with the shepherd, you can find true contentment and a life satisfaction that nothing else can touch. And that was last week. And today we're going to look at the second verse, but I want to read you verses 1 and 2 because they just, they're just too connected. And I'll put it on the screen because the translation may be a little different than, than you've got there in your Bible. But Psalms 23, 1 and 2 says, The Lord is my shepherd. I have in him all that I need. And he is so very good to me. He lets me rest. He brings me rest. He helps me to relax in meadows that are green. He leads me. He doesn't send me. He doesn't direct me. He doesn't boss me. He leads me. He takes me by the hand and he leads me beside streams that are so very peaceful. Now that's the Gregory Amplified Version. Now, So in verse 1, we talked about last week, it speaks of contentment. And our shepherd 
provides all that we need so that we can be content. And because we need a sense of security, verse 2 speaks of peace and rest. The shepherd who provides all that we need uh, because he provides himself is our uniquely divine source of security. Think of the metaphors that scripture uses, particularly the Old Testament. God is our rock. That's a source of security. God is our refuge. That's a source of security. God is our fortress. That's a source of security. God is our very great help in time of need. And see, this is so important because we live in a world that doesn't lend itself to making us feel secure and confident and safe. Recently, I stumbled across this little paragraph in a blog I was reading on the internet. It reads like this. We have an epidemic of insecure people in our society today. Many people have an identity crisis because they don't really know who they are. They base their worth and value on all the wrong things. Now, this is pretty good. They base their value and their worth on what they do. And see, that's a, that's, a, that's a dead end cycle because you're not a human doer, you're a human being. What you do is not who you are. Who you are is a child of God. If you base your worth on what you do, then you're only going to feel good if you're successful in what you do. If you base your worth on who you are, then you're always going to feel like there's some worth about you because he doesn't change. Others base their value on what they look like. What a trap that is because styles change. Every few years, styles change. Marilyn Monroe would not be very attractive in today's society because she's not a size zero. So why are you going to base your value and your self-worth on how you look when, how you, when, the, when the style is going to change tomorrow? It goes on and says, don't base your value on who you know. Don't base your value on what you know. Don't base your value on what you own. You know what happens when you base your value on the possessions you own? Your possessions then own you. And what a trap that is. If you got it, wonderful. If you don't got it, wonderful. It doesn't really matter either way. See, our God does not want us to be insecure in who we are. In John 14, it's a beautiful passage. Jesus is talking to the disciples. They have finished uh, the Passover uh, feast. He has instituted the Lord's Supper. He's about to go out to Gethsemane. He's about to pray his high priestly prayer uh, in John 17. Um, and he tells the disciples that he's leaving. And they freak out. And here's what he tells them. Peace, I leave with you. Peace. Peace. My peace I give you. Not just any peace. It's his peace. And if it's his peace, it's mega peace. It's infinite peace. It's omni peace. It's peace without measure. I do not give you as the world gives. I do not give you as the world gives. I do not give you based on what merit you think you might can achieve. I don't give you based as the world gives. I give you based as I give. And my gift is based on my character and not your, what worth you can create in yourself. You don't earn it. I give it as an act of grace. 
Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be anxious. Do not be afraid. See, God wants us to be at peace. He wants us to have joy and faith and confidence. These are his gifts. He wants us to be courageous. Listen, he placed his spirit in our hearts. And he has placed us in the Father's hands. And he walks with us everywhere he goes. The awareness of his presence will drive away our fears. We just got to work at becoming more aware of the fact that he is here. Now, see, here's the problem. We are broken people. And we live in a broken world. And broken people in a broken world are going to struggle with emotional insecurity. It's just part of who we are. And we need to face our emotional insecurities because a secure person is much more likely to achieve loving and meaningful relationships. In other words, what I'm saying is the more secure you are in whose you are, the more you will love God. And the more secure you are in whose you are, the more you will love the people around you. And here's why. When you're not secure in whose you are, you're going to resent God for making you a way you don't think you should have been made. And when you're not secure in whose you are, you're not going to like the fact that somebody else may have a little more skill. Charlie, I don't like the fact that you can sing. That just ticks me off. You know, just watch you up here and you make it look so easy and you just belt it out. And I'm sitting there stumbling over the words and I'm croaking and Debbie is sliding down because she doesn't want to hear. And I'm just, you know. And see, when we're insecure, we become competitive with the people around us who may have a skill we don't have. But if we're secure in who we are, then I can love you and I can appreciate the fact that you can do something that I can't do. And I'm not in competition with him. And isn't that freedom? I don't want to be in competition with everybody. Because there's a lot of you who can do a lot of things I cannot do. See, feelings of insecurity create anxiety. They create competition. They make us overly sensitive. They make it very difficult to empathize with other people and show them love. So we must come to terms with our insecurity because only as secure believers in Christ will we fulfill the great commandment. Only as secure believers in Christ will we fulfill the great commission. See, if you aren't secure in who you are, you can't empathize with those who are in real need. And if you don't empathize with people who are in real need, you're not going to feel compelled by God to go and minister to them. Because it's all going to be about you. Your whole life is going to be built up in making you feel better. And there's no way that God can use somebody with that kind of disposition. Now, you may ask yourself, how do I know if I have any insecurities? Are you breathing? Now, some are more insecure than others, but every one of us battles an insecurity in one form or fashion. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, mankind has been battling a sense of insecurity. I mean, think about it. God comes to them in the, in the cool of the evening and they're hiding from God. Why are they hiding from God? Because they're naked. Well, they've always been that way. Why is it just now a problem? 
They've never had clothes before. And they've never been insecure in their lack of clothing before. Their environment hasn't changed because God hasn't changed it yet. He's going to, when he casts them out of the garden, he's going to change the garden. He's going to change the world. The world's affected by sin. But at this point in time, that hasn't been affected yet. The only thing that's been affected is what? Their heart. And in their guilt, they now feel insecure. And in their insecurity, they're worried about how they look. They've never cared how they looked before because in, their security, in the security they felt in God, they felt like they looked fine. But now all of a sudden, they don't look fine. So they're getting fig leaves and sewing them together. And they got the Kmart version and they were upset until they got the Neiman Marcus version. Just making sure you're awake. Let me give you a list of characteristics of insecurity. Now, you, you've got to be brutally honest with yourself here. I'm not going to take a test. I'm not going to ask anybody to raise their hand. And so if you just slough this off and just, just ignore this, you're not hurting anybody but yourself. All right? And I, I had a whole list of things. I only picked the six things that I'm guilty of myself. So I, I'm not pointing any fingers at anybody but me. So everybody, everybody comfortable with this? All right. The first uh, characteristic of insecurity is defensiveness. Do you exhibit defensiveness? Maybe you should ask your spouse that question. Defensiveness is defined as being overly sensitive to or reacting very strongly to perceived criticism. King Saul started out with such great promise, but was eaten up by his insecurities. We see him become so defensive every time the prophet Samuel showed up and pointed out to him something he didn't do correctly. And we see his insecurities in the paranoia he felt toward David. He should have realized that every time Samuel showed up to, to point out something to him, it was God's way of refining him and reshaping him and making him into a better king and a better man. So you have to ask yourself, do I have a tendency toward defensiveness when other people question my decisions? Do I get mad when someone confronts me? Do I whine and complain when somebody criticizes me? Check, check, check. Selfishness. Do you attempt to find security by surrounding yourself with possessions, awards, or attention? Are you reluctant to praise or compliment other people? Do you cringe when someone else is recognized because you want to be the only one who gets all the awards? When you don't get your way, are you difficult to live with? I'll let that one hang for a minute. Must you always have that feeling of validation? Do you always have to be right? Accommodation. Do you attempt to gain the approval of others by bending over backwards to please everyone? Now, I'm not talking about just being nice. Being nice is good. But do you have a difficult time saying no because you fear someone will think less of you if you don't do everything you're asked? Indulgence. Do you indulge bad attitudes like jealousy, envy, bitterness, and arrogance? And do you coddle sins because you feel justified in doing so? Listen, 
I met this gentleman a couple of weeks ago, and it's just haunted me ever since. He goes to another church here in town. He's been a member of there his whole life. He's been a deacon for 40 years. And I didn't ask him. I didn't ask him. He found out who I was, and he jumped into the conversation. And all he could tell me about was the people in that church that he hated. He started with the pastor, and he went down the list. And I just stood there in amazement and just thought to myself, you cannot claim to love God whom you haven't seen if you don't love the people who you have. But he just went on. I couldn't get away from him. I tried walking away, but he, he had a captivated audience. He, he, you know, and I kept thinking, oh, please don't come to my church. Please don't come to my church. Please don't come to my church. And finally, because he wouldn't leave me alone, I turned around and I, I kind of confronted him with it. Do you realize the Bible says that if you're a believer in Christ, you have to love people. And that's when he started with all these reasons why he was allowed to hate these people. No, you're not. But it's an act of defensiveness. We come up with all these excuses to indulge the sins that we're so caught up in. And it's not just, you know, it's not just that. It could be anything. I had a guy one time tell me why he didn't have to tithe. I mean, he really believed in the depth of his heart that God had given him an excuse and he didn't have to tithe. He had to dress a certain way at work and he wanted to look very professional and so he spent all his tithe money on his wardrobe. I was 28 years old and knew that was stupid. We indulge. You ever seen a little kid excuse his actions with the statement, well, he hit me first. Well, if we don't let little kids get away with it, why do we think we should let ourselves get away with it? Secure people forgive. Secure people let it go. Secure people confront their sin. Secure people do not indulge. Another one's judgmentalness. Do you find yourself being negative and critical? Are you consistently finding fault with others in the way they do things? Do you believe you're the only one who can do it right? Do you hear yourself saying, well, I'm just being honest. No, you're not. You're just being judgmental. Now, the list was really long. I just picked those because I see them in myself. And see, the good news is we don't have to resort to any of these behaviors. We can grow we can grow in our faith to become more secure people, confident people, positive people. We can overcome our uncertainties and our anxieties by focusing on how much God loves us and by drawing our sense of self-worth from our relationship with Him. There's a beautiful passage in Zephaniah. In Zephaniah chapter 3, it says, The Lord your God is with you. He is with you. He is with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Your God is with you. And he is mighty to save. And the word save there is not the Old Testament word for for spiritual salvation. It's the Old Testament word for a physical rescue. Your God will come to you in your time of need. He is with you and he will protect you. Look, he says he will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. What does that sound like? What does that sound like? Does that not sound like a parent and a newborn child? Do you not understand that how God feels about you is how you felt about your child when you first brought him home from the hospital? I mean, they, they, were, they were young and, and they were helpless. And, and you know, all they did was, was cry and eat and worse. 
You know, that's, you know, cry and eat and worse. That's all they did. Man, you and Pampers, you had a real good relationship with Kroger or Walmart because you always got buying Pampers. That's the, the, they only did three things, but they captivated your heart and you loved them with all your might. When my first child was born, we had them in the room. You know, you could back then, you, you know, the child was born and you could keep them in the room. They didn't go to the nursery area, the hospital. The nurse came, he was born at like four o'clock in the afternoon. At two o'clock the next morning, the nurse wrestled him away from me because I hadn't put him down yet. You know, is it... Isn't that what that sounds like? Isn't, and, and see, that's how God feels about you. Now, if God loves you that much, do you need anything else to have worth and sense of self-value? If God looks at you the way you looked at that newborn child the first time you saw them, if God looks at you that way and still looks at you that way, is there anything else going to add credibility to you? I mean, you think about that. The Lord your God is with you. He will rejoice over you with singing. And he sings really well. Now in Psalms 23, in the second verse, David has an answer for the natural insecurities that we face. Security is found in rightly relating to your shepherd and knowing that he meets all your needs. The security of the shepherd provides you two things. First, it gives you emotional rest. And secondly, it gives you a sense of direction. The shepherd will rest you and the shepherd will lead you. He will give you emotional rest and he will give you direction and purpose. Now, let me show you what I mean. David starts with the truth that the shepherd rests us. He makes us to lie down in refreshing environments. And this speaks of peace because when we are insecure and when we are stressed and we are, we are defensive, we don't relax. We can't relax. We can't turn our brains off. We can't sit down and get comfortable. We lose sleep at night. We lose time at work. We're stressed out to the max. We're not, we're not functioning at a high uh, skill level because our mind can't get off what is creating the anxiety within us. And God wants to come along and shepherd us. And remove that anxiety and give us peace. You know, when you're stressed out, you always have to be doing something. You either have to be doing something trying to impress somebody, or you have to be doing something to take your mind off your problem. And we all admit it doesn't work. We can stay as busy as we want to be. It doesn't affect the sense of insecurity that we're feeling. And see, God wants to come along and be your shepherd and help you find validation in him, in him, in him alone. See, this goes back to the idea of grace. If nothing else, grace teaches us that our worth is found in whose we are and not in what we do. Listen, you're valuable regardless of what you do. You are valuable because you are created in his image and you are made in his likeness. And you are designed by his mind. And you are shaped by his hand. And you are forgiven by his cross. That makes you valuable. Regardless of what you do or do not do. You can add everything to a resume. It does not add to the fact that God deems you valuable and significant and worthy. Do you understand you're the apple of God's eye? You are. Scripture says so. 
You bring a smile to his face. You bring joy to his heart. He invites you into his presence where your soul finds rest in the beauty of his glory. You are so valuable, Jesus chose to die for you. You are so significant, the Holy Spirit chooses to live in you. You are so worthy that the Father has chosen to adopt you. And not only did he adopt you, he not only treats you like a stepchild, he treats you like a real child. You have a, you're a joint heir with Jesus Christ. What Christ is going to inherit in eternity from the Father, you're going to get an equal measure. What in this world can add to the internal inheritance you're going to get in heaven? And yet we, we fight and we scrap and we scrape together little tiddly tiddlywinks trying to come up with something that makes us feel good about ourselves because we've achieved some measure of success in the world's eyes. You don't need it. You don't need it. Your Savior's already given you everything you need. Stop looking at the people around you and start looking at your shepherd. Stop looking at the world and start looking at your Savior. See Him and you will see yourself the way He sees you and you will be filled with a quiet contentment and a strong sense of security. Knowing who you are in Christ and knowing how valued you are in Christ and knowing how significant you are in Christ Knowing it in your heart and not just in your head will free you from the secure insecurities that just compound on this life. See, knowing that Christ values you will free you from having to compete with other people to feel valued in this world. The second thing that, that David tells us is the shepherd leads us. He not only rests us, he leads us. He gives us direction and purpose. And he leads us in the most personal of ways. He doesn't send a roadmap saying, that's where you go. Hope you find your destination. He comes to us and he takes us by the hand and he engages in our lives and he joins us on the journey and he leads us down the right path. And this world is hard. Navigating through this world is difficult. We need him to take us by the hand and leads us. Listen, I went to New York City once in my life. A few years ago, in fact, 2001, I went to New York City. I stood on the World Trade Towers. I stood in the World Trade Towers in June before they were bombed in, or hit with the airplanes in September. Uh, so. But when I went to New York City, we stayed in uh, uh, the Comfort Inn in, in Manhattan, just north of uh, Central Park. So everywhere we went, we had to ride the subway. How many have been to New York City and ridden a subway? Okay. The rest of you need to get out a little bit more. Riding the subway really isn't that hard to navigate. It's really not. You got a map. You know where the stops are. You navigate. What's hard is when you come back up on the street, you don't know which way is which. So you know if you're at the corner of this street and this street then, and you want to go to the Disney store or you want to go to the Empire State Building or you want to go to Chinatown, you know where you want to go. You just don't know where you are. And see, life is that way. We know where we want to go, but we don't know where we are, so we don't know how to head that way. And so the great thing is God doesn't hand us a map. He comes and he takes us by the hand. 
Our shepherd is with us. We, when we were on that trip, we went to Yankee Stadium. Now, here's one time the map didn't help. We were on that trip. We went to Yankee Stadium. We got to see the New York Yankees play the Oakland Athletics. And the game finished late at night. And just, just like any other time, uh, once the crowds thin out, they stop running the trains. And so at 11 o'clock, we are in the Bronx at Yankee Stadium. We go down to the subway, and I'm looking at the map, and I'm waiting for this certain train to come by. And uh, we wait, and we wait, and we wait, and it doesn't come by. And this guy, Bobby, is with me, and we're talking, and we're trying to figure the map out. And finally, this guy walks over, and he goes, y'all are not from around here, are you? And I said, what gave it away? He said, where are you trying to go? And I, I told him where the hotel was in Manhattan. He said, well, these trains don't run this time of night, but if, you will, if, you'll help me, if you'll let me, I'll help you get there. He took me by the hand and got me back to Manhattan and got me to my stop and got me back to my hotel. And see, that's what God does for us. He leads us in a very personal way. He comes to us and he leads us. And in his presence, there is peace. He invites us into his presence where we find rest. See, if we would work at our relationship with God as hard as we work at everything else, we'd be so much better off. Now, shepherds in Israel have an interesting way of teaching the sheep to recognize their voice. What the shepherds in Israel do, according to this book I read, and let's hope it's right, it sounds good anyway, is when they come to the sheepfold, to the, to the pen, and they take the sheep, they call the sheep, the mother's sheep will come with them. And they've got fruit in their hand. And they'll back away and they'll keep talking and they'll back away. But they'll take the fruit and they'll offer the fruit out. And they'll offer it way down low where the little sheep can get to it. And the little sheep will come up and eat the fruit out of their hand. And then he reaches in his bag and pulls out a little more. And he backs up a few more steps. And he keeps doing this. And he's talking and he's feeding. And he's talking and he's feeding. And the, the little sheep are attracted to him because he's got the fruit. But while they're eating the fruit, they're also learning to recognize his voice. And God does the same thing with us. God takes his word and he speaks to us. And he speaks to us the beauty and the majesty of this book. And he reveals himself and who he is and what he's doing. And in that, we have fruit for our soul and we receive the, 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 the nourishment and the substance that we need as, as believers in Christ and we learn to recognize the voice and in the recognition of that voice we have peace let me finish with, with, with three verses three thoughts, three verses look at this, first you can deal with your insecurities by, by learning to understand you are complete in Christ. You are complete in Christ. Now, the second chapter of the book of Colossians deals with that incredible subject that in Christ rests the fullness of the Godhead. So, so Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, actually contained the whole Trinity. I don't, you know. So it's talking about Christ being completely God. All right, and then it gets to verse 10. And it says, so you also are complete. You also are complete. Just as Christ is completely God, you are completed in your union in Christ. So you are also complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and every authority. That word for complete there means to be filled to capacity. Filled to capacity. You have no lacking. You are not inadequate. Do you hear me? You are not inadequate. You don't lack anything. God has given you everything because God has given you himself. 
The world will find your weaknesses and hammer you on them. God says, you have no weaknesses in me. In your union with me, you are filled up to completeness. Now, number two, Romans 8, 17. Since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. You are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You have been adopted into the family. You have a place at his table. You have a room in his house. Your name is on the mailbox. And you are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. You're in the will. And anything Jesus gets, you're going to get. You know, we talk about a mansion on a hillside doesn't hold a candle to receiving the inheritance you're going to get. If gold is used as pavement, what do you think God's really going to give us? He's going to give us himself. And it will be worth far more than any material possession could ever buy. And finally, you are alive to God. Ephesians 2 says... Even though we were dead because of our sins, we weren't bad. We were more than bad. We were bad, but we were more than bad. Even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life with Jesus when he raised Christ from the dead. Now, I don't, I don't pretend to understand this, but it says it in Scripture, and that settles it, and I'm going to choose to believe it, whether I understand it or not. But somehow in his foreknowledge, God in his sovereignty placed us in Christ when he hung on the cross. And when Christ's body was taken off the cross and placed in the tomb, we went with him. And when Christ rose on that Sunday Easter, first Easter morning, when Christ rose, we rose too. We were with him. When God gave Jesus a real life, he gave us eternal life. When Christ rose, we came too. Now what in the world can this world do to top that I mean I, I like my shiny things but nothing's going to come close to the eternal life that I have in Christ I like having a car that talks to me I'll be honest I plug my phone in you can text me and I can talk and text back I don't have to pull over and, and, and go to the thumb thing you know I like having a car that talks to me. That's just the coolest thing they ever came up with. That's better than intermittent wipers. I got a car that talks to me. She comes on and she's, she's, you know, she's kind of sweet, doesn't boss me around too. Now, you know, I, I turn off the GPS because ain't nobody telling me where to go. But, but she comes on and she says, you have a message from. Would you like to hear it? Yes, please. Okay, here's what they said. And it talks to me. That's just the coolest thing. I like that. That's a shiny little thing in my car. But it doesn't come close to what I will receive in the inheritance I will get from, with, with Jesus Christ when I stand before the Father. It's just, you can't add to it. You can't add to it. Count up one day. Um, I was at a friend's house one day and, and his son was... was uh, his son had 17 earned high school trophies. These weren't participation trophies. These were earned high school trophies, 17, in a 6A high school. Kid was incredibly talented. I wanted 17 trophies. I didn't have 17 trophies. But you know what? What we will inherit from, from God will so far eclipse an earthly trophy. Debbie went to high school with this girl who married a University of Nebraska football player that went on to play 11 years in the NFL and was an all-pro when he was with the San Diego Chargers. 
His name was Mark Benning. You can look him up. You can Google him. And Mark is 6'7 and, and well over 300 pounds. And at our wedding, at our wedding, Mark comes in. He shakes my hand, tells me, you know, good job. He steps over to Debbie. He grabs her by the arms, picks her up, kisses her on the forehead, and sets her back down. There was nothing I could do. You know, I thought about punching him in the gut, but I knew how rock hard his stomach was. It would have hurt my hand worse than it hurt him. There was nothing I could do, you know. You go in Mark's house and there's his Nebraska trophies and they're his all-pro trophies. And he played for the Pittsburgh Steelers and the San Diego Chargers. So when you go in his house, there's a table like our communion table right by the door. And there's his Nebraska helmet, his Pittsburgh Steelers helmet, his San Diego Charger helmet. I remember the first time I took the boys over there, they were still... Uh, Jared was still a preschooler. Jordan was probably first grade. Anyway, they just stood there the whole night putting those helmets on just out of amazement. See, we love our trophies. There's nothing wrong with that. But please realize there's no trophy you'll receive on this earth that comes close to the inheritance you're going to receive from God. So don't live for the trophies. Enjoy the trophies, but don't live for the trophies. And if you don't receive the trophies, don't think, don't think, don't think you're missing out on anything because what you got waiting for you is far surpass, is going to far surpass anything you may have received here. My boys were giving each other a hard time. Jordan, the older one, got a promotion. He's only been there a couple years. He's already got a promotion. So one night at the table, he's kind of crowing about it. My, grand, my, my mother's, that's good, Jordan. I'm, I'm proud of you, son. And Jared decides for once in his life to be spiritual. Yeah, but that's not going to matter when you get to heaven. You are complete. You are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And God has made you spiritually alive. You are complete. You are filled up complete. You are heirs to the greatest treasure the universe has ever known. And you have, been a male, you have been made alive in Christ Jesus for all of eternity. There's nothing, this world, as good as some of its stuff is, there's nothing this world can do to add to those three truths. Let's pray.